This is After School on Core 77. I'm Don Lehman. Brooklyn-based design firm Pensa is helping to pioneer the movement for consultancies to bring their own projects to market. Earlier this summer, they partnered with Goal Zero and AT&T to develop Street Charge, a solar-powered charging station that can be easily installed in public spaces. Today, I talk with two of Pensa's partners, Marco Perry and Mark Prommel, about their new project, the DI Wire, a desktop wire bender that launches today on Kickstarter. Stay tuned. You know, I feel like 3D printing sort of snuck up on people who were already using 3D printing. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, because like back throughout the 90s and 2000s, it was sort of like this expensive tool that only companies and universities could afford. And then, you know, I think all of us who had been using 3D printing sort of accepted that. And occasionally you would show it to people who had never seen it before and it would blow their minds and you go, oh yeah, this is amazing. But because you kind of just, you know, wrote it off as this really expensive tool used for a certain thing. But then when the MakerBot came out, the big innovation wasn't that it was better than other 3D printers. It was that it was dramatically cheaper and uh, more accessible. Uh, And as it turned out, just getting that tool, even in a primitive form, into people's hands can start a whole uh, movement. And I feel like this is exactly the same thing that's going on with the DIYer. Uh, what's, What's the wire bending field like right now kind of leading up to something like the DIYer being released? Yeah, so I, I think you have, you have a great point. I, I think one thing, I haven't used 3D printers since the mid-90s. Uh, when I saw people started using it for art and craft and fun things uh, with kids and education and all sorts of other applications other than prototypes, I was sort of blown away that it never occurred to me. Yeah. Like I use them all the time. And then I was like, oh, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> and it, it, it's sort of funny that, you know, you're holding a machine all the time and, and it never occurs to you that you could use it for other applications. And so the artists will push the engineers, I feel, and then the engineers start grabbing and seeing what people are doing and they start pushing art. The machine designers, I guess I should say, start pushing what their machines can do to sort of satisfy that need. It's sort of a balance that goes back and forth. So in the wire form, you know, right now, it's not only an expensive machine, but to run um, uh, to a fabricator and ask for them to run parts for you, oftentimes the minimum order quantities are in, you know, thousands. So you wouldn't even bother. So you would do it by hand. And so when we show people that you can do something that would either take the hand skills out of it or take the minimum order quantity out of it, they were amazed. And and I don't know what people will do. Some people will use it for dentistry, but some people will use it for art for sure. Sure. Or other creative systems. Yeah. How did the project start for you guys at Pensa? So, sure. Um, So, you know, as a we're a design firm and... Um, we make a lot of models, we make a lot of prototypes, we, we make a lot of things with our hands. Um, you know, we use some of those tools that you're referencing before, a lot of desktop manufacturing and fabrication tools. Um, and we've been using 3D printers for, you know, more than a decade. And they're great and really useful for a lot of things. And, um, you know, we were just coming across some very specific problems where, uh, you know, we're trying to print, you know, quarter scale models of, of larger structures that, you know, in, in this case it was furniture um, that, you know, had like three quarter inch tube uh, in, in the design. And, you know, a three quarter inch tube at quarter scale um, on a 3D printer is, you know, takes a long time to print. It's pretty brittle when it comes out. It's, it's just not the most efficient way of doing it. And uh, we didn't really have a way of precisely doing that. And so to Marco's point, I mean, we had, you know, in various designs, we had used uh, CNC wire and, and tube and rod bending um, on like a factory mass production scale, but there really was nothing in between that and you know bending something by hand using a variety of, of hand tools or benders. 
And uh, in order to be able to do something really repeated um, and precise, you know, we felt like we had nothing at our disposal. So, you know, we ended up bending things by hand and they would come out, you know, kind of 80% of what we were hoping for. Um, and, you know, it just dawned on us that it may not be that complicated to make a desktop wirebender that uh, wouldn't necessarily be able to do everything that the mass manufacturing product can do, um, you know, the $100,000, $200,000 machine in a factory, but it could do a lot of what we need. And at the time, you know, we weren't really speculating that a whole bunch of other people needed it either. It was it was really a bit of need that we had in, in prototyping and design. And um, and so we built the, the first, uh, you know, kind of rough crude one out of some parts that we had laying around and, and a couple of things that we ordered. And, uh, you know, and it worked really well for us. And so, you know, from there, it was really a process of uh, opening that up to people. And we thought this was really cool. We thought, well, let's see what other people think of it. We hadn't really considered making it for people. Um, you know, we open sourced that first one um, 100% and, you know, put everything out, the build files, all the code that we used, um, you know, the software that at the time was, was pretty crude and simple. And, um and, you know, we got a lot of feedback and a lot of interest. And, and, you know, the amazing part to us was that even though a lot of people were really, really interested in it and excited about it and downloaded the, the files for making their own open source version and told us all kinds of ways that they would be interested in using it, um, not very many people made one, but a whole lot of people wanted to buy one. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so that's kind of what, you know, that's the... From there, realizing that actually took a little bit of time and then starting to think about how we might approach actually making one more for production and what it would be like. And, and um, you know, there's been a, a lot of refinement since then. But, you know, that was the initial spark. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I should say at this point, since I didn't uh, kind of distinguish your guys' voices on the uh, at the start, that uh, the guy who was just talking is uh, Mark Prommel, who's uh, – maybe Mark, introduce yourself a little bit. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a partner here at Pensa. Uh, we're a design and invention firm uh, here in Dumbo in Brooklyn, um, and we work on uh, you know all kinds of different types of, uh, of products and um, you know and also design research and strategy and brand work for a lot of different kinds of clients from um, you know Panasonic and uh, Samsung to um, OXO and uh, Pepsi and Playtex so a lot of different realms of the consumer product world um, you know solving problems designing products um, developing inventions for people yeah, and so uh, and, I, and I'm Sorry, yeah, sorry, and, and your partner is on the uh, the other line here. It's uh, Marco Perry. Just say hi, Marco, so everyone hears your voice. Hey, everybody, Marco. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, so what were the, the technical challenges in kind of taking it from that in, initial kind of rough prototype that you open sourced uh, to getting it to where it is now, where it definitely feels like a fully designed product? There's been, this is Marco, by the way, there's been, there's been a, a variety of challenges. Firstly, we wanted to make sure that we were, you know, choosing the right feature set. So our, our open source one is, you know, 3D and it could bend aluminum pretty well, um, and, but it had its limitations. And so this one is 2D, partially because it's a lot easier to draw in 2D, also because when you bend a wire in 2D, it doesn't, intersect the table or the floor or the machine. It's just sort of like you can you can bend a circle and it'll just be no problem. Uh, it'll jump over itself. And um, But that was a big decision. We had to really start deciding, like, who's going to use this? What are they going to use it for? What kind of strength do we need? What kind of materials should we be able to do? What size and, and diameters uh, or profiles of tubing? Uh, all these kind of things we have to go through. And then we also had to build a company around it, so it's like, what's the brand? What's the um, uh, what's the feeling of that brand? How does this company communicate to its customers? How does it, um, you know, does it have a lighthearted voice? Does it have a sort of professional voice? You know, all the competitors. So there was a lot of strategy that went into the beginning to really try to figure out who we are and how we're going to be, and then what are we going to deliver uh, from uh, the entire experience. So that's why 
uh, we decided early on that we wanted a machine that, you know, was very well designed, both uh, aesthetically, but um, and, and but also just component-wise, it's just like super uh, well laid out and engineered, but also then the software we had to go through, we wanted an experience that was completely seamless. So now we have it so that if you draw a file, uh, save it as SVG, drag and drop, press bend, and you're done. You know, there was there's a lot of work to get all that to work in the back end. And then once we output all this bent wire, you have to assemble it. And so we started testing that for a while, and we realized we needed a, a series of accessories that allow you to assemble the wire um, and fixture it all up before you go in and, you know, hit it with solder or, or uh, welding or anything else like that. So end-to-end, -end, we wanted to make this thing as seamless as possible because the brand qualities we wanted to go after was this accessibility that you were talking about earlier. And part of the accessibility is money. Uh, but the other accessibility is that anybody can use it and anybody has the ability to put the, uh, put the stuff together, including, you know, third graders. Right. And I think we achieved it very well. Yeah, yeah, because most other maker tools or, you know, desktop manufacturing tools have this decidedly, you know, they're DIY products and they feel like DIY fit and finish wise as well. Talk about the process of, of taking taking it to that kind of fully designed thing. You, you were talking a little bit about creating the brand around it. Um, how did you kind of, you know, get it to where it is now? So this is Mark. Um, so, you know, we started talking a lot about craftsmanship, uh, you know, throughout this process. And, and uh, you know, the idea that it's craftsmanship sometimes for, for people can be a, a, a barrier or, or a high bar. Um, you know, part of that is that the tools are not readily available um, to make craftsmanship accessible. And so, you know, if I need a, a full workshop full of um, a lot of elaborate tools and, um, you know, expensive, difficult to use, potentially intimidating tools in order to achieve the level of craftsmanship of something that I want to make, um, then craftsmanship starts to become uh, less accessible to as many people. And so part of what we think that the maker movement is about um, in these tools becoming available is about craftsmanship becoming much more accessible. And we started calling that um, modern craftsmanship. You know, this idea that people still, of course, are going to have to have be creative and have ideas they want to produce, but the barrier to achieve uh, a result that, you know, bears a certain level of craftsmanship that can be appreciated and even, um, you know, potentially sold or turned into a product that people would want is, you know, being reduced by these tools. And so, you know, this, that idea that modern craftsmanship we really felt should be reflected in the design of the actual tool itself, you know, and, and we, we think there is a certain DIY kind of hacker aesthetic that maybe has come across in some of these tools, but, you know, we think that a, a tool that really is supposed to be about, you know, offering you this level of precision and, and level of craftsmanship and lowering that bar should speak about that in its own design language. And so everything from the, you know, the interface and the way that you actually load the wire and the types and parts of the mechanism that are exposed, um, you know, but the precision way that they're laid out to, um, you know, the language of the, you know, the precision, um, you know, milled out, uh, texture and, and uh, perforation that runs around the body. Everything is supposed to speak to that idea that this is a precision tool and it's offering you precision in a very simple way. Um, and to the interface is speak, speaking that language as well. And then some of the other accessories that Marco was uh, mentioning uh, for helping with assembly and fixturing on the back end, which, you know, for a lot of people is another huge bar uh, barrier to, to, you know, especially working with metal. Um, as you get into soldering or welding and those kind of things, that fixing something up and getting it set up to do so to do some soldering, which um, actually is is pretty accessible way to attach metal together to a lot of people. You know, we're trying to make that as easy as possible, make that as simple as possible, make the, make the whole process complete and simple, and offer that craftsmanship. Yeah, well, one of the things you you've been successful with over the course of the development is promoting the idea. And I think that's something that a lot of um, designers and kind of people who are 
uh, starting up something, they, you know, they might be more proficient at the technical or the design side and they kind of forget about, you know, the importance of, you know, just communicating the idea. How have you approached uh, your marketing and PR? So I think the way that came about was that we open sourced it not knowing that we were going to try to sell it or make money. And we just thought it was a cool tool and uh, it was a way to showcase our capabilities as a consulting firm and that we, most of the stuff that we do gets buried by, you know, uh, clients' faults somewhere. And um, so we were just going to showcase it. It was like no big deal. But when we realized that it had some legs, then we started considering uh, it more as a, something that we could actually pursue. So the marketing is sort of done for us. I think the way to be, to do that actually is to just be completely open. And, you know, we put it out there. You're definitely going to be, you know, subject to criticism from people on the internet and you're, you might fear that people might just take your idea and run with it. But in, in this case, especially nobody ran with it. They really liked it and they just wanted one. And the, so the fear of it being, you know, ripped off or anything like that was, was gone. So the more we just started talking about it and not being worried about, um, talking about it, the more people started to cover it. Um, and then, you know, you just show up at the right place at the right time and some luck will happen as well. Um, so there's no real formula to it, but I would say that in the past we were really you know, protective of our ideas because that's all we have as designers. Um, and, and therefore we would be really afraid to show people things and we would make sure that we had all the legal contracts in place before we even opened our sketchbook. And then, you know, things went slowly and nobody ever heard about it. So this time around, we're like, you know, forget it. We're going to do it. We're just going to be open about it. Whatever happens, happens. And next thing you know, things get covered and, and it takes off. And, you know, frankly, we've done some ideas like that and they, they didn't take off. And that was good to know. We get the feedback that, you know, you design something that people want early on before you invest too much into it. Um, I think on top of that, though, is that, there's just this general sense that sometimes you come up with an idea and it's a, it's a feature. Uh, sometimes you come up with a bigger idea that's more of a, of a product, you know, and you have to sort of be very brutally honest with yourself. It's like, did I come up with a feature or did I come up with a product? And in this case, when we started getting a lot of feedback, we started to feel that we actually came up with a whole company. That this has, a, has legs to build an ecosystem of products around it that it could scale up and down in its capabilities, that it could have um, uh, accessories that could go with it. Uh, and But we would have never, ever known that had we not been open with it. People told us exactly what they wanted to do. Then you take that information and you're like, oh, well, look, I think we have a company on our hands. We're going to have to do something with this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you guys just launched uh, DIYer on Kickstarter, uh, I guess about two hours ago now. It's, it's, it's doing great. You're already over 30% of your goal, but your goal is huge. Uh, it's a hundred thousand dollars. You're trying to, uh, raise, talk a little bit about the challenges of, of having a goal that large and kind of how you approached, um, you know, setting up your project to, to reach that goal. Yeah. I feel that there was no way to know how this was going to turn out. <laughs> Even after like we launched at nine ten in the morning and at nine oh nine, we're like, I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, at at nine at nine oh uh, nine eleven, we had sold one. Uh, you know, and then we started selling, you know, one every two minutes, and then the early bird special sold out, and by forty five minutes, we were uh, up to a third of our goal. Uh, so at nine oh nine, we had no idea if we embarrassed ourselves with such a high goal, and and then you get a bunch of you know potential investors in the future or potential customers in the future saying, I don't want to back the loser. Um, and so that's a, that's a big risk. But, if, but I guess we, we've been in business long enough to know that if we're not realistic about the goal we're going to have, the worst case is just to set a low goal and then um, you're stuck with promising people uh, a delivery on something you basically can't afford because if you don't if you don't build it at a particular scale, the cost is astronomical and the effort is astronomical. And then you're in your living room assembling these things. It's like a nightmare. Yeah. So we had to be realistic about it. And it really worried us because we're like, who do, you know, sure we have, you know, 
a, a large mailing list, but, you know, will 0.05% of that mailing list buy one or 1%? Like, we had no idea. Yeah, yeah and so um, to, part of that about knowing is that it is uh, it is one thing to say, well, we, you know, we, we took what was a $100,000, $200,000 um, on the floor of a factory machine and uh, try to simplify it down to a desktop machine that, you know, at this point, we think probably may retail somewhere in the 3300 to $3,500 range eventually. Um, and so that seems like a drastic reduction in price and, and, and in drastic increase in accessibility, which it is. Uh, but it's still $3,000, you know, so that's that's still a high bar. And to Marco's point, you know, we've done a lot of outreach. You know, we've, we've really been... Um, trying to get as much feedback as possible, you know, be at Maker Fair. We've been at uh, multiple Maker Fairs for the past uh, two years. Uh, we've, you know, been touring, going to uh, different university programs, showing these different uh, educational programs, you know, K-12 as well, and, um, you know, engaged different maker spaces around New York and other places, and just trying to get feedback, trying to get, um, you know, as much input and, and, and uh, understanding as possible, um, and built a lot of community, built a huge mailing list. At the same time, you know, translating and understanding who of those people are actually customers for the product and who just find it really interesting and the entire movement to be very cool um, is uh, it's a little bit difficult to suss out. So, um, you know, we, we go into it thinking, well, this seems realistic, we think, and it seems like a bar that is good for, um, for what we need to get started. Um, but the main thing is that we didn't really necessarily see without doing some crowdfunding, um, a way to get them into people's hands very quickly, uh, and into, you know, a good number of people's hands. And so this seemed like the best path to do that. So we felt like, uh, we had to go forward and, um, really that's what it's about is seeing what now a larger number of people are going to do with them, uh, you know, and, and really building on the momentum and the story, of, of that because the power in the tool is what you do with it and we need more people to be using them uh, in order to see that yeah yeah so what are some of the things that uh you're hearing people want to make with it or some of the stuff that you guys have been making with it so far it it falls in a lot of campuses like people interested in craft uh, some people interested in art and, and things like that which is definitely very interesting uh but it gets really interesting when a lot of businesses are coming to us with problems that they have in that they are they need short run production because um, they want uh, inventory just in time, or they want uh, the they don't want to carry inventory until they really need it, or they want to be able to do it on site or do it locally. So to ship a, a tube full of straight rod is a lot easier than to ship a bunch of bent stuff. So they want to do it on site. Like there was a guy who was doing. Like solar collectors and with a bunch of actuated mirrors that needed rods to move all the mirrors uh, attached to the motors. And he needs to know what the site is like and he needs to be able to go there and, and make them on all on demand. Um, and then there's a lot of people who just are starting out new businesses and, and they don't know whether they're going to be able to justify the volumes. Or sometimes there's people like NASA was coming to us because they're making satellites and they need particular types of antennas or they need particular types of structures and they're not making thousands of satellites they're making a couple you know so they need to run through ideas really quickly uh and then education is like super exciting because the whole idea of trying to make craftsmanship more accessible uh really starts at education and if you want to learn math principles science principles there's no better way than actually experiencing them and using your hands and doing it it becomes really really sticky but if if then you are frustrated because you don't have the hand skills then you know you're not learning math or anything so um it becomes really interesting in that the output is a couple of minutes um uh rather than hours so you have some immediate gratification you can build things in big and so you could build you know a steel truss bridge rather than a popsicle bridge uh, popsicle stick bridge, you know, so you can really start to explore a lot of different things in science, technology, math, engineering, uh, or even art, um, craft, things like that. So it's it's all over the map. Yeah. This isn't uh, Pence's first uh, self-started project. Uh, earlier this year, you launched the Street Charge. Uh, explain that project a bit. 
Sure. Um, do you want me to take this part? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, Street Charge, uh, I would say probably started out um, maybe in a similar fashion in that it was a, an internal idea. Um, it was more, ins- I, I would say, inspired in a different way than, than um, the DIYer, though, and that. Uh, you know, DIY was really inspired by a specific problem we were having. Um, you know, Street Charge was more inspired by some things that we saw happening within our community and, you know, within, you know, Brooklyn, but also in, you know, greater um, New York City area. And a lot of uh, outdoor spaces being repurposed and um, redesigned and, 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 and developed to be these beautiful spaces for people to um, have short-term or long-term interactions, uh, more of a sense of community around the city. And so, you know, these outdoor spaces from the, you know, reclaimed pedestrian triangles to um, new uh, redesigned waterfront parks all around the city were becoming places where people's office space was being extended out into. People are spending, you know, hours of their day there. They're having meetings, um, you know, and, and sometimes just people passing through neighborhoods. But, you know, we saw this, and, and then you start seeing free Wi-Fi become available in these places. And you know, we really saw this as a change in the way people were working and interacting on a daily basis around New York. And we felt that trend was happening other places as well. Um, but we really saw a lack of power. Uh, and we felt like, you know, it's one thing to say, well, these spaces will eventually be um, wired with infrastructure for power. But, you know, right now, it seemed like there was a hole that there could be um, a drop-in solution that would that would solve that, and we felt like that solution should probably be solar power. Um, that way, it could be one contained unit. Uh, and beyond that, though, I think we looked at it as a design opportunity that you could design something that is beautiful, that is uh, you know elegant and simple, looks like it belongs in these environments, it complements these environments, and it speaks to you know the beauty of drawing solar power from the sun. And, um, and so we initially developed a concept for street charge that we put out. Uh, and again, it was really the same kind of process where we just decided, let's put this idea out, see what people think of it, and really not having much expectation beyond that. Um, and we had initial renderings that were put out. And, uh, you know, and we immediately started garnering a lot of interest. And you know, kind of just following where the interest was led us down the process that, you know, first we had interest from our local business improvement district, who um, you know gave us some of their umbrellas that they were using in one of the one of these pedestrian triangles in Dumbo um, here in our neighborhood, and we we took those and created prototypes, uh, charging tables around the umbrellas, some solar, some battery, integrated all that, just on a very simple prototype that allowed us to immediately start to get more people interacting with it, more feedback. But the press for then from that round really led us to um, manufacturers contacting us, um, a lot of uh, corporate interests and um, other municipalities wanting to buy the units. And so that, again, started to push us into thinking that we maybe needed to um, to make this into more of a real project. And, um, and and one of the people that was – so our manufacturing partner came from that. They contacted us, uh, and that's a company called Goal Zero. Um, and so we um, we started working with them and partnered up. And uh, pretty soon following that, we were actually contacted by AT&T. And it all kind of seemed like a very natural fit because AT&T, uh, you know, wanted the units to add as a complement uh, to the Wi-Fi power and uh, free Wi-Fi that they offered as a service all around the city. But they have already had access to all the spaces. And so um, that allowed us to kind of get around the navigating the bureaucracy and trying to get something out on the in public in New York City. And uh, so once we were working with AT&T, it all kind of fell into place. And so we really went from an idea that was a rendering that we put out, uh, you know, and got out on a few blogs to actual pilot run product in parks all over New York City within six or seven months, um, which we really feel like if we hadn't been completely open and optimistic and unafraid about how you know, we were going to put this idea out, that never, ever could have happened. And that was a, kind of a big lesson for us, and we took some lessons of that uh, from that experience and the way that we've worked with DIY as well. Yeah, and it's a, definitely a different mentality of how to approach work than kind of than, than traditional industrial design has kind of done in the past where we're very kind of secretive uh you know we're 
you know, a lot of times we're working under NDAs with clients. And so obviously in those situations, you don't want to talk, but it seems like you guys are getting a lot of success from, you know, getting these ideas out as soon as possible, really kind of getting feedback from it and, and acting on it. It's, it's been really interesting in that, you know, we, that process was born out of frustration in that when we were working on that chair that we offered them, inspired the DIY, we, we spent a year and a half, maybe had six meetings because of negotiations of NDAs. And then the feedback was like, go, no, go, you know? And it wasn't like, well, it would be really great, but, you know, we, we would like to have some sort of different feature set or we were really looking for a table and then we could have had a conversation about a table. Um, and instead it was, you know, uh, you know, months to set up the meeting and then you have the meeting and they're like, no, I'm looking for a table. And, and so at that point, you know, the relationship is dead and you can, there's no conversation. And, and it, it kind of dawned on us, like, that's not how we run our design projects, right? We're, we're open with each other within, in, in-house. We, we share ideas. We, we try to explore every possible avenue until something really great happens. And serendipity is not just luck. You can make your own luck. And by being uh, open, so we're like, what's the worst that could happen? Um, you know, maybe somebody will rip off our idea, but the, the reality is part of the reason people are not running with the ideas that we're opening with and they just kind of want them is because they're, A, it takes a lot of skills because hardware is hard, or B, they're busy because they have a business doing something else. And, you know, they can't just formulate a team around it. And then it sort of dawned on us that people don't want to copy ideas. They want to copy success. So if if we have a success in any of these things, then then for sure copies will come out. But that doesn't mean that that won't happen if you went the NDA route and the don't show anybody route either. You know, competition will will arise anyway. Right. So that's a business problem, not a design problem, or not a problem with being open. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so kind of returning to the street charge for a second, um, you know, you, you launched it this over the summer and you, you were in a bunch of parks in New York, you're in Brooklyn bridge park. And, uh, you know, I saw you in Coney Island and a few others talk about, uh, the rollout of this, uh, product and just kind of how you managed something that was kind of a first gen new to the world thing. Were there any hiccups? Uh, yeah, <laughs> there were a lot. And, uh, you know, I think that that's something that you got to be prepared for as well. Um, the more open you are, uh, you know, there's going to be some great positive feedback and learning. Uh, but part of that learning is um, certainly that there are going to be problems. Um, the earlier and rougher an idea is that that's made public, um, you know, the, the more things that are going to go wrong. And I think as long as you're prepared for that, um, as long as you have a team uh, and the right team that can react quickly uh, and is and looking at it from the right perspective, that this is about learning, this is about advancing, this is about the fastest way to move to the next uh, level with the project, then then you're good. Um, if you're not prepared for that, you think every, you know, the first idea is going to go out and everything is going to be great, uh, then you're going to run into to problems. And so, you know, we certainly had our, our fair share of issues. And, and I think that, you know, <clears throat> what's interesting about it is that and what's been great about our partnership uh, with Goal Zero as well uh, is that they had the same mentality about it as we did, which oftentimes with a lot of clients we have, um, you know, that product at the level it was at, uh, you know, the, the prototype at the level it was at would never have been made public because of the, the fear of the backlash, the, the feeling that, uh, we had to really refine everything to the nth degree in order to make sure that there was no negative feedback and no negative press and, uh, you know, and, and, and try to control the message as much as possible. Whereas they saw it the same way as we did where it's about learning. And, um, and so, you know, because we had AT&T that was offering us access to these spaces, uh, you know, we, we felt it was well worth the risk to push forward at that point and uh and get something out there and and so it wasn't necessarily ready but we reacted to things that uh problems that were happening you know uh firmware and hardware was continuously being updated uh on all the units throughout 
the pilot run, um, you know, and even just issues we were having with uh, the wood that we selected for the tables, um, all, all kinds of things that we kind of thought were decisions that were good decisions that were made turned out to be things we needed to learn from. And so there also wasn't really any other way to do that learning. And, and frankly, you know, doing it on the streets of New York maybe isn't the simplest, uh, lowest risk place to, to do a pilot run, but we really felt like if we could get through the summer with, with those units here and learn from it, then we could you know, pretty much do it anywhere. For sure. Um, I, think there's an ex- I think there's an expression based on that. But, uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, so you know that certainly there were there were there were plenty of things that what we learned from, and we're still learning from. We still have a couple of units uh, here in, in our neighborhood in Dumbo that we're kind of monitoring throughout the winter and, and again updating and um, you know still learning from uh, as the street charge message and uh, you know marketing is moving on to to other regions right now. Yeah, you know, speaking with the. Uh, engineers who are helping us uh, put this into production, they said, well, we, you know, sometimes we'd spend a year or two years and just testing before we roll out a product at this scale. And, you know, we were out with 25 in months. And then every day we had to go out, find out what went wrong, go back to the office, brainstorm, and by the end of the day, come out with uh, another refinement that we could deploy in the field the next morning. And for the first two weeks, you know, it was 24 seven we were doing that. And there's no way that we would have gone that fast had we not been under the pressure to make sure that these things are working. Um, and so within the first month, we were, you know, many, many design iterations ahead. Um, and, you know, sure, we, we risked bad uh, sentiment, but it, it ended up that people were actually very patient because they, they really saw the street charges as a really helpful service to them. And so they were, you know, really happy to have us come in and fix it. And sometimes when we were taken apart and redo some of the electronics and cables and stuff like that with refinements, they were plugging in, even though this thing was like ripped apart and all over the ground, you know, and I'm like, you know, it's not attached to anything. And you're like, Oh, well, I'll wait. You know, but yeah. they really, really needed one. <laughs> yeah. 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 One of the more, uh... I think that's under, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mark. No, uh, sorry, I was going to say that. I, I think it's it's underestimated a little bit um, the uh, you know the amount of goodwill that that you have if you're if you are providing a service to people and it's something that people need and you know they they worry is that, that you know the negative reaction to things that go wrong and things that break and things that we're learning from. But you know, more overwhelmingly, we really just experienced. An amazing amount of gratitude and appreciation, not only for the service, but also for the design and the beauty of the object and, and a level of sophistication to the understanding that, that people had to what we were trying to do um, more than much more than we expected. And so that was just, you know, very um, heartening and, and uh, you know, really was such a positive reinforcement for us of the actual process. Yeah, yeah. You know, these, these self-started projects aren't the only things going on at Pensa. You know, you're, a, you're also a design consultancy. And this is a trend that a lot of design firms are, are kind of taking part in right now where there's kind of these two sides of the business. And sometimes that means partnering with startups and taking ownership percentages of royalties or, you know, some like yourselves are launching their own product lines or companies. And I'm wondering, do you think that this is uh, more of a trend uh, more than a trend, or is this something that is kind of here to stay with kind of the, the, the design consultancy model? I think it's it's here to stay. I, I think it's it's been here. It's just it's easier now, so you see more of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the risk before was that you would either have to, you know, line up with a distributor or a manufacturer or a brand to get your ideas out there and, you know, eat out a royalty out of it. Um, now with, you know, crowdfunding or AngelList or um, a- any number of, uh, you know, low volume manufacturing options with desktop fabrication, uh, you can just go ahead and do it yourself. And it's always been a dream, I believe, of, of designers. They're basically inventors. They want to do their own stuff and they, they have the ability to do it from a consulting point of view. 
uh, but they, uh, you know, all of them inside, they want to do their own thing. So it, I don't think that has changed. It's just that it's so much easier now. It's only going to get easier. Uh, and, you know, part of the dot-com era saw a huge explosion of, of entrepreneurs that were really young and they were doing software because, you know, pushing bits and electrons is really cheap and simple. And so we saw a boom there. But now, you know, pushing atoms uh, and is, is getting cheaper and simpler. So hardware is interesting. And hardware is, again, intrinsically difficult. So it's, it's a little bit easier to protect, you know, uh, it's, it's you, you have to have a lot of skills. You have to understand engineering and physics and everything in order to get these things to work, right? So very higher bar to entry. How do you manage balancing both sides of the business? Uh, <laughs> not very well. <laughs> we... Uh, so, I mean, our business is still, you know, overwhelming majority of it is, uh, you know, design consulting um, and, uh, you know, fee for service. Um, and we work with, you know, all kinds of clients from, uh, you know, computer hardware and uh, consumer electronics to um, housewares and, uh, you know, and everything in between. And, you know, that, that is the core of business. That's the core of the talent and skills of our design, design research, and um, engineering-based staff. Um, and so, you know, I think a little bit of, of all of this is, you know, you have to be careful. Um, you know, we we are, uh, you know, going into this trying to, um, you know, bootstrap it a little bit, um, you know, spend uh, some of our spare time and overtime and, and other time um, on these efforts. Um, you know, we have a dedicated amount of uh of um, time and resource that we budget for it, but uh, it can very easily spin out of control. And, you know, you have to know, um, you know, what kind of staff you have uh, to be able to accomplish these, um, these projects. And so, you know, we've, we certainly are, um, you know, managing that as, as we see fit from project to project, but it is, it certainly is, is a, a difficult challenge. And um, I think that, you know, as as people who have been in the design consulting world for a long time, we've we've seen um, different levels of clients succeed and fail based on a whole bunch of different uh, factors that you know, as the core of our business, may be kind of outside of our control. And so now we're getting to experience some of those factors ourselves, and it's certainly a, a you know learning experience, and we have to learn as we go. Yeah, how do your clients I, I, respond to? Um, the fact that you guys are taking on some of the stuff, has it been seen as, you know, oh, they kind of get some of the things we're going through now uh, sort of thing? Or is it, is it like a big, is it a positive for your clients? I think they love seeing some of these successes, you know. They yeah. want to be with a company that they that they, they feel good about and also that they can tell their bosses about and, uh, you know that you know, this is a reputable company and they do good work and all that. And again, we were really initially doing it to showcase our capabilities um, because you know nobody gets to see our work as a consultancy, which is, is truly uh, an issue. I, w- I would add some some business stuff to it uh, to what Mark was saying too. Is that you know that everybody who's had the consultancy or even a freelance business has experienced that you know it's feast and famine. And um, if you run, if you successfully are able to run a couple of different business models, such as this or a royalty business or anything else like that, it offsets a, a curve of the feast and famine so that you always have cash on hand um, coming in. And so one comes in quarterly and you know, the other one comes in as, as jobs come. And as the economy comes up and down, they don't act the same. So it, it is kind of critical for us, too, to be able to do some of this in order to get a decent balance sheet. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of positives aside from just ego, um, if it works. But if it doesn't work, you know, you've just taken all these, uh, you've just taken this giant risk, <laughs> and uh, you've paid all these people uh, their salaries to, throughout that time, and then you might have nothing to show for it. But so what we were trying to do was to make sure... It, 
at the very least, we were getting marketing benefits from it and with, with very low effort, you know, renderings, movies, or blog posts. You know, that's nothing compared to a fully engineered product. And then we get feedback, and then we say, okay, now it's, now it's worth investing, you know, design time into making a prototype. And then we get more feedback. If there still has legs, okay, now it's worth investing engineering time. But all, of, all along, we're mitigating these risks, you know. Sure. Yeah, and it, you know, also to to elaborate on your on your point before, um, it, it, that that really is almost where where it started for us as far as like what are what do our clients think of the work or potential clients, uh, you know, and the fact that we do a lot of work uh, for especially in the consumer electronics world where it's it's future thinking work. It's you know we have these technologies, we're not really sure what to do with them, you know, and we create stories and scenarios and concept products that, um, you know, hardest technology that exists, but puts it in a new light and talks about the way that people are going to be using um, these technologies in the future. You know, and, and all that product concept work, never seen, you know, and, and, and um, which work that we're really proud of and it really excites us doing that work. And we feel like it's a shame to not be able to talk to people about it. Um, and so, but at the same time, it's the realities of confidentiality and, and you know the client-based business that that we're in, and so a lot of a lot of these projects and this work has somewhat been born of that frustration and the idea that um, you know creating some of these scenarios and uh, visuals that we think are really exciting and compelling and being able to make them public and you know it has the effect that we hope for in the sense that our clients who don't get to see our other clients work now get to see some of our other thinking and thoughts on invention. And we think of ourselves as a very inventive group. And so this is about trying to be able to showcase that and put those ideas out there. Yeah. So besides launching DIYer, today is also Pensa's eighth anniversary, which is uh, congratulations. Thanks. Um, what have you learned about, running and sustaining a company over eight years? Well, you know, some people, some people talk about, you know, trying to get the company off the ground and, you know, some of the, the factors would make that runway for your airplane longer. You know, if you, if you're well-funded or you're well-connected, you have a longer runway. So you have a little bit more time to get that plane off the ground. Uh, other people have said, and this is the way I feel, is that starting a company is like jumping off a cliff and building that airplane on the way down to the ground. And so like maybe if you had a little bit more money or if you had a little bit more connections to clients that already want to hire you, you have a higher cliff. But you you are, it's it's literally, it can be that scary because, you know, now we have 13 people. Um, I tell you, when I, I hired my first person, I doubled my staff. I doubled my my paychecks and then you know they get to a level where you need health insurance and stuff like that and you know you feel personally obligated to people they have family they have uh, their own lives and it can, it can be very difficult but if if you have a lot of passion people will pull for you uh, so I think what's worked out very well for us honestly is that you know we just work really hard and doing great work and we're just really nice to people and that always pays off it, it, it you know it, it seems sort of not very sage-like to say, but, you know, I tell you, if you're nice to people and you work hard and you you meet uh, things, things will happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the other thing that um, about us, I think that, that we're very conscious of is our scale and, uh, you know, and how how we grow and, and what um, what types of people that we bring in and, and you know, each person is really, really thoughtfully considered and, and how they fit within the team. Um, and, you know, we're, we're at a scale as, as right now at 13 people that each person really kind of has to wear multiple hats and, and be valuable in those different ups and downs that Marco talked about before, um, you know, to help us push a lot of different ideas on a lot of different kinds of projects forward uh, in multiple ways. And, um, and, it, and in some ways, I mean, that, that scale is, is part of the, the core of the idea of what we want the company to be about. And that, um, you know, we came from the big 
design consulting world, you know, a couple of different uh, big design firms that, that we've worked at. And, you know, although those places are fantastic and have just, you know, a slew of brain power and um, you know, great interactions happening on a daily basis, you know, we felt like we wanted to have a faster, more intimate relationship with our clients, um, you know, quicker decisions day to day, um, you know, cutting out a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of bureaucracy that comes from larger firms and, uh, you know, being able to, to just, um, just work, you know, and, and, and our clients really value the fact that when they, when they call the interactions they have, uh, that, you know, they're often with very senior, uh, people or, you know, with Marco or I, um, in particular, Marco and me in particular. And, um, you know, I, I think that, that that is something that we've, that kind of size firm is something that we've worked hard to, uh, to develop and foster and understand, you know, but, uh, you know, what we're really good at and building on that and building on that kind of relationship with our clients. And, you know, we, it's, it's, it's become, it's a very rewarding way to work. Yeah. Well, congratulations again. Uh, we started the interview and you were about 30% of your way to your, uh, your goal for your DIYer. And now you're at 47% of your goal and it, it just went up again, as I said that. So, uh, congratulations. It, it looks like you're well on your way to, uh, to getting this thing going and, uh, look forward to the next eight years. Yeah. If we keep yeah. conversation any longer, we'll keep, uh, <laughs> keep funding it. Maybe. Yeah. Well, we'll just keep talking until, uh, you get to a hundred. I'm sure we'll have, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, thanks guys. Thanks so much, man. Yeah. That's our show. I want to thank Mark and Marco for being our guests today. Their DIYer is now up on Kickstarter, and you can find it by going to kickstarter.com and searching for DIYer. You can search for Pensa. You can search for Wirebender. You can search a lot of things. You're probably going to find it. Uh, you can see more of their work at pensanyc.com and pensalabs.com. You can subscribe to After School on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store on your computer or the podcast app on your mobile device and search for Core 77 or After School. And when you're there, if you like what you're hearing, give us a nice review so other people can find us as well. Also on Core 77, we include show notes that link you to all of the stuff you heard us talking about with the Pensa guys. You can follow me and the After School podcast on Twitter at After School. And you can follow Core 77 on Twitter at Core 77. After School's theme song is Introducing Today by Disco Lobos. I'm Don Lehman. Talk to you soon.